You pressed play on this podcast with the click of curiosity. It is another dimension, a dimension of mind, a dimension where nothing is sacred and everything is explainable. You're streaming into a land of both inside and outside of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the midside. Welcome to the midside where we should be watching football, but we're recording this episode instead. I'm your host, Justin M. Lesneski, the hopeful bromantic, and I retroactively and proactively denounce anything anyone has ever said and ever will say on this show. Joining me this trip from Dale's lawn, identifying as a woman to forgo his white male gay privilege, William Green. Hello, hello. Yeah, a little bit of travel adventure this morning, but happy to uh, announce uh, the newest midsider, um, baby Evie, my best friend's uh, daughter, was born um uh, a week uh, on monday of, of this last week so a week ago for those of you listening to the recording so congratulations to matt and lily and uh she's the cutest baby ever you know usually babies come out they uh they uh have a particular look about them but she's uh she's uh she's pretty uh pretty handsome for a newborn so hopefully uh hopefully this bodes well for her future career as a mars engineer i don't know musician instagram star who knows well, she's in California. As long as it's not homeless person, it's a victory, right? <laughs> That's true. That's very true. All right. Also joining us, I'm very excited for this guest. Uh, he, he's one of my favorite people to have on the show. From Brooklyn, he has a PhD in philosophy and teaches philosophy at the college level. He also wrote the Capitalist Manifesto before his new book, Why Johnny Still Can't Read or Write or Understand Math and What We Can Do About It. And we're going to be discussing that book on this episode, Andrew Bernstein. Thanks, Justin William. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Yeah, I remember last time you were here, uh, you enjoyed witnessing the farce with us. So what we're going to do is we have a few stories of farce from the past couple of weeks, and then we'll go right into talking about your book. Does that sound good? Yeah, and well, there's no shortage of farce to witness, you know, to, to mock on the air. So, so get to it. Yeah, we All say right. uh, saying on the show is we we have never reached and will never achieve peak farce. So that's our saying here. Yeah, well, certainly not as much as the as the Biden regime can accomplish. All right, William, let's head into life on the midside. As always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so through Patreon or Locals. Patreon is per episode. Locals is per month. That's the midside.com slash Patreon or the midside.com slash Locals. We accept any and all support, including, and perhaps most of all, affirmations. All right, gentlemen, the first bit of farce that uh, I want to talk about here is something that sort of is like a pet peeve of mine. And and I think this, this story encapsulates people thinking because they're on the internet and they have greater accessibility and greater communication tools at their disposal, that they're smarter than the world. And William, uh, I think you see this a lot when people refer to things that are hacks that aren't really hacks. So from uh, this article from the hill.com and it says Chipotle puts a stop to quote unquote hack that allowed customers to order 
$3 burritos. And essentially what happened is people were ordering tacos with all the toppings on the side. So essentially it was a tortilla and then toppings on the side, but they were ordering extra and then claiming that it was just a taco. But like happens, uh, Chipotle figured out that they were losing money and time for their servers and put an end to this. And of course, people are upset about this. William, isn't this a perfect example of the internet? And perhaps this seems like a very Reddit thing to me, thinking they're smarter than everyone else Yeah, when they're well, not really. And, and the key thing was they were bullying the uh, poor employees when they were getting the smaller size. Like if you order a single taco, it's not like you get like three cups of cheese or, you know, like an entire, you know, giant scoop of uh, guacamole, right? Like they're basically trying to get a burrito without paying for a burrito and then right. yelling at the uh, uh, the poor employees when uh, when they don't get the result they desire. Yeah, it seems, yeah, this isn't really a hack. You know, you're giving, you're giving us hackers a bad name when you call uh, stuff like this a hack, you know? Well, people do that all the time, right? I can't remember what it was the other day, but somebody said something. To me. Oh, yeah. Somebody was like, if you put sand in Ziploc bags, you can put it on a tent so the legs don't, uh, so, you know, it doesn't blow away. Put it on the tent legs. And they were like, that's a hack. And I was like, no, that's just using your brain. Why do we call <laughs> these things hacks that are just using your brain? Or at worst, you know, at best using your brain. Or at worst, it's, you know, trying to take advantage of a situation and essentially steal. This is theft, is it not? Yeah, it definitely feels like it to me. If you, if you're trying to get nine dollars of value out of and only pay three dollars, uh, yeah, that's definitely a problem. So I guess I, I guess they took it off the menu, huh? As their temporary fix, you can't order tacos now unless you're in the store. That's the the ultimate sort of uh, consequence. Nobody realizes, Andy, right? That when you do things that are anti reality, something is going to happen as a consequence that you don't anticipate. Yeah, there's a law of unintended consequences, and you know it's like shoplifters and everything. The the store has to the stores lose the money, so they they raise prices, including for the shoplifter if he have a, if he or she ever buys anything. But I, I think in this case, Justin and William, I think we need a rigorous definition of hack. You know, one that would shows what what's covered by hack and what, and what isn't covered. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. And I actually, I want to return to the shoplifting point because I hadn't connected that. And I want to ask you a question as a philosopher, since you bring that up. That's when we're talking about California, right? William, you're out there in California. They've been doing a lot with the letting people shoplift thing, right? Like if it's under a certain amount, they can just shoplift and get away with it. They don't, they're not going to prosecute them or anything. Why, Andy, do you think there is a a move towards our society where we're accepting shoplifting and we're accepting things as hack. Like you're saying, there's not a rigorous definition. So we essentially accept shoplifting as a hack when really it's just stealing. Yeah. The, the shoplifting in California and, and perhaps in other places is, is disturbing. It shows, you know, the, we've always had a, we've had a problem for a long time in recognizing and upholding the principle of individual rights. And that principle is just being being more and more lost, I think, by Americans and and especially uh, on the left, where they, they they're collectivists and they don't they don't believe in individual rights in the first place. And so, protecting the rights of store owners and shopkeepers and and everything is not part of their worldview. I know even worse than that is is some of these Soros-funded DAs one let violent perpetrators out of prison and or two don't prosecute. Uh, people who are accused of violent crime. So there's more and more violent, you know, violent criminals on the street. 
perpetrate crimes even, even more egregious than shoplifting against innocent victims. So that's why you know the crime the crime rate is uh, is going up the way it is. It's not it doesn't it's not it's not rocket surgery as they say. You know somebody somebody initiates more so fraud against innocent victims. Crime you 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 put them away. You don't you don't let you don't let them go. It's and so we're we're becoming a lawless, more criminal society. And if any honest person of either gender or any race, it's scary. Yeah, we've talked about a couple episodes ago uh, at my local grocery store here. There's a whole section now of 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 like several aisles worth of product that you have to push your cart into a like a a section within the store, and you have to pay for the items that you uh, purchase in that section in that section. So there's like whole things like cordoned off now. You know, it used to be, you know, every once in a while you'd go into a pharmacy and maybe all the deodorants would be locked up or the Similac or, you know, the baby food or something like that. No, it's it's entire aisles of my grocery store here uh, is is cordoned off into a special section because, uh, because yeah, you I guess, know, presumably for for loss prevention. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me, um, you know, I've been down to Guatemala a number of times to lecture at, 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 at University of Francisco Marroquin. And if you walk down the streets of Guatemala City, it really shocked me the first time. There's militia guys standing outside these stores with automatic weapons, just right out there, you know, on the on the street. And um, I guess the, I guess the crime rate is so high that the stores feel the need to to hire these, you know, I don't I don't I don't know, you know, what what they are, you know, private guards or you know, are they a part of a militia? I mean, they're they're in you know paramilitary. Yeah, they're paramilitary. They're, they're, just military outfits with with automatic weapons, and um, you know, pretty soon, if if the crime rate continues and the and the the government in California, other places, does not protect the rights of the of the store owners and the shopkeepers, pretty soon they may have to hire armed guards to to you know protect their own store. The problem is, you know, that Newsom and those guys in California would put the, the armed guards in prison sooner than he would you know, sooner than he would the uh, the criminals. But but that's but that's what it's coming to. And that's to me the the fact that we can even make that connection, right? Remember this started we were talking about a three dollar taco on an app, right? And now we're talking about armed guards hired privately by these companies to protect themselves. And it's it's crazy to me that we're we're possibly even connecting those dots and kind of understanding and having some sympathy for why they would do that. Yeah, well, hopefully the voters, and I don't know, I don't know how much you know hope I have have for voters in California. I, I know, I don't <laughs> know how much. No, seriously, I mean, I don't know how much pain they have to absorb before they will come to their senses. Hopefully, they'll vote people like Newsom and and other leg, you know, and legislators like him out of office and vote in people who will, uh, you know, be tough on criminals. You know, remember New York City. Was just as it still is. It was just as crazy as as California, and yet in the '90s they elected Rudy Giuliani mayor, and um, he and his police commissioner William Bratton had this funny idea that crimes not caused by poverty was not to be, you know, remediated by welfare payments, but it's caused by criminals and it's to be remediated by arresting the criminals and putting them away. And they had a very strong police presence throughout the city, especially in, in high crime areas. And they brought within a few years, in the mid to late '90s. They brought the, the crime rate way down to the point where New York City had the lowest crime rate of, you know, of any city uh, over a million people in the country. And it's, it's not that hard to figure out how to do it. And my, my nephew at that time was a you know, New York City police officer. And, and 
the prior mayor, David Dinkins, you know, he was, you know, way to the left, he was soft on, on crime. He's like Newsom and those guys in California. And, and the crime rate was very high, which is one of the reasons Giuliani was elected in 19, because he ran on a strong anti, you know, you know, uh, law and order platform. And I asked my nephew, I said, you and your buddies on the, on, you know, on the NYPD, if, if the politicians let you do the job, can you protect innocent people and put the bad guys away? And he said, absolutely. And Giuliani let them do their job, and they did. So it, it, it's not, you don't need a PhD in physics to figure out how to protect, you know, honest people from, from criminals. And by the way, one last point on this. You know, Heather McDonald, the, uh, who's one of the leading experts on crime in, in this country, she estimated uh, that the Giuliani's police presence in New York City, especially in the, you know, in, in the projects where, where the crime rate is so high, saved, I forget what the number was, over that period of time of his mayoralty, 10,000 minority lives, she estimated, was saved by his police policies that would have died, you know, violent, violent deaths from other, from other gangbangers. I love the terminology, little gunbusters, as they're known in the projects, that would have died, you know, been murdered by these other, these other criminals if, if uh, Dinkins' soft on crime policies had continued. So I think, I don't know what the exact number is. I'm sure even Heather McDonald probably doesn't, but a lot of a lot of lives were saved. And, you know, we, if, let's put it this way: we care about black lives as we should, because we should care about all human lives. We got to put the bad guys away. You know, so the cops aren't the problem. Uh, the bad guys are the problem, and the politicians who, uh, you know, who don't who don't permit the police to do their jobs. Like I said, you don't need a PhD in physics to figure out how to bring the crime rate down. Certainly not. And William, hopefully you can rally everyone in California to to listen to the common sense that Andy is talking about. Um, I'll, I'll have a couple of legislative actions uh, that I'll be working on this year. <laughs> but amidst all this conversation, I, I don't want to you know make it seem like we're only in favor of you know companies and corporations, and they're all doing good in the world too. One of the nice things about the mid side is we can go to the other side here and talk about some of the other ridiculous farce. And this is actually a story that was sent to us by uh, our former host, Daniel Richards. Uh, the, this is from CNBC. The, the founder of the company Patagonia, which they make the, all the clothing, right? The outdoor clothing, uh, just donated the entire company worth $3 billion to fight climate change. Now, I don't know what the exact details of the numbers and everything in the background is. A couple things it says is uh, the company's non-voting stock worth close to $3 billion will be owned by a collective that will use all profits that aren't reinvested into the business to fight climate change. And the company expects to contribute around $100 million a year, depending on the health of the business. But to me, what really points out the farce here is uh, the owner, and I, I don't know how to say his name, that's why I keep calling him the owner, so nobody get mad at me because I didn't say his name, wrote about how they were, quote-unquote, reimagining capitalism. And this is what he said. <laughs> Right, because, you know, this guy, the guy who founded Patagonia is going to figure out how to reimagine capitalism, right? While we're doing our best to address the environmental crisis, it's not enough. We needed to find a way to put more money into fighting the crisis while keeping the company's values intact. One option was to sell Patagonia and donate all the money. But we couldn't be sure a new owner would maintain our values or keep our team of people around the world employed. Another path was to take the company public. What a disaster that would have been. Even public companies with good intentions are under too much pressure to create short-term gain at the expense of a long-term vitality and responsibility. Truth be told, there were no good options available, so we created our own. 
And what's so insidious about this to me, William, is how he's couching all of this in what seems like rational discourse, right? When he starts talking about being concerned about the long term versus the short term and making sure your values are maintained. But this is all in service of environmentalism. Yeah, and, and loony environmentalism at that, right? Climate change. We, uh, we can't even say what we're really aiming for. And Well, I use those words synonymously nowadays. Yeah. Whenever anyone says they're an environmentalist, they really mean they're a climate change alarmist. Yeah, yeah, that's you definitely know, true. Think, think about it. You know, in, in, that, in that blurb there, they're talking about several times mentioned the crisis. You know, Al Gore and, and a lot of environmentalist leftist types always talk about the crisis. You know, and it's like an article of faith amongst the environmentalist movement around the political left. And so, you know, where's the empirical data? Where is the crisis? There's certainly the, uh, the temperatures have gradually risen, although much less than their computer models predicted. But you know, they've, they've been talking for 30 years. I can remember back to 1988 when the, when the uh, global warming lunacy started with James Hansen at NASA during that hot summer of 88. Even going back then, that's, that's more than 30 years ago. They were predicting, you know, that the land-based polar ice caps would melt and that low-lying coastal areas would be flooded. But by this time, before, you know, what's his name? It was Hansen, I think, um, himself, who said the West Side Highway in New York City would go underwater by, like, 2006 or 2008 or something like that. Well, it's as dry as it was in 1988, and he makes no apologies. You know, he does his, you know, oops, I was wrong. You know, you know it's as well. It didn't happen in 2006, but it will. And, you know, they, just keep, they keep pushing the disease. You know, we have eight years left to save the planet. And then when those eight years pass and the planet's doing fine, well, it's ten more years we have to save the planet. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like, it's it's like the rapture. It's always uh, right around the corner, you know, like the, <laughs> yeah, the, the old yeah. school, uh, you know, Christian cults, right, back, uh, back in Jesus' yeah, time. And even today, yeah. right, the rapture is just right around the corner. Yes. Yeah, the Seventh-day Adventists, you're right, William. They they were the, the Christian denomination that started the end of the world stuff. That the world's going to end, you know, on July 6th, 1884 or whatever. And then yeah. you know, that, that time came and passed. And, well, it didn't end, so they just pushed the, it back to, you know, well, on, on, you know, on February 14th, 1901, you know. And then they, keep, they, they, they just keep pushing it back. So you're right. The, the climate change scam is, is very similar. Yeah, they keep saying that Florida is going to be underwater, and I, I can assure you, Florida is nowhere close to being underwater. So, well, uh, actually, you get a lot of rain. You get a lot of rain. We do get rain, but we we're not flooded like some other places are. So, well, you know, according to Al Gore back in the day, you know, it's a, it, it, on the theory it's a linearly warming world, so it should be getting warmer. Well, it is getting warmer, but you know, but very gradually, at a very slow rate, much slower than their than their computer models. Predict, but I forget what yeah, I don't remember the numbers, but like 2008 or something, he predicted. You know, by the summer 2013, there would be no sea ice in the Arctic. You know, you know, during the summer. Well, the summer 2013 came on, and there was still plenty of sea ice. They said, you know, just keep pushing back the date. It's a scam. Yeah, I, but this issue fascinates me, guys. I've uh, done a lot of research on it. You know, I published two essays on it, which anybody can read on my website, you know, Bernstein.net. The main one is truth about climate change, and the, the, the follow-up one is further truth about climate change. But here's the truth about climate change. It's, it's overwhelmingly natural, only trivially man-made. And warming is beneficial to life on Earth, not pernicious. It's the colder periods of Earth's climate cycle that are, that are harmful or baneful to you. And so, something that nobody wants to mention 
And some of the leading scientists, Roy Spencer, you know, Dr. Roy Spencer, meteorologist, you know, from NASA, uh, Dr. Tim Ball, Canadian climate scientist, they both claim, and they're not the only ones, that the CO2 pumped into the atmosphere every year is at minimum 95% caused by, by nature, not man-made. At minimum 95% of, of the CO2 generated on, on Earth every year pumped into the atmosphere is, is natural, not man-made. Nobody, nobody wants that. You never hear that on CNN, you, you know. Al Gore's not going to not going to you know, debate anybody who claims it. And he can go on and on with the data. You know, Al Gore is very convenient, right? He and his ilk. You know, there's no time to debate, only time to act. So he won't debate, you know, Alex Epstein or you know any expert on on this issue. Very convenient. But um, yeah, the truth is, I mean, one last point. If he was right that we're really in a in a crisis, that's all the more reason we would need to debate. You know, we need maybe set aside a short period of time because because it's there's it urgency here. But a week or whatever, everybody's everybody's voice gets heard. Everybody who's you know, who is knowledgeable in this field presents their evidence. You know, and then may the argument with the stronger evidence win. That's that's how you would confront it if they were if they really if you were honest and you really thought there was a sense of urgency. But no, he says there's no time to debate. There's only time to act. Well, that, you know, so, so he doesn't have to debate. Very convenient. Which is ironic because, you know, his whole thing was an inconvenient truth, right? Right, so. right. Well, there's a lot of inconvenient truths for him and the IPCC. You know, one, I just mentioned one of them about the, the bulk of the carbon dioxide pumped into the atmosphere every year. It's not man-made. It's natural. Yeah, yeah, again, they don't want to point out that the oceans contain 50 times more CO2 than the atmosphere does. And when the sun's at the high point of its cycle, as it was in the 20th century, you know, it warms the oceans. An enormous amount of CO2 is pumped into the atmosphere from the oceans. That's where most, well, that's where a lot of it, that's where a lot of it comes from. And another inconvenient truth, guys, you know, go back in time and in, 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 in the modern warm period and prior periods, uh, warming precedes, or global warming precedes rising levels of, of atmospheric CO2. Not vice versa. Warming comes first. Then the rising levels of CO2, largely for the reason I just gave. When the sun's at the high point of its cycle, it warms the oceans, which contain 50 times more CO2 than the atmosphere does by a process of evaporation. Enormous. Uh, Abdul Samatov, a leading Russian astrophysicist from Uzbekistan who studies the sun climate connection, points out enormous amounts of CO2 are released from the oceans You know, when the, when the, when the sun's at the high point of its cycle, which is why all the data we have, honest scientists recognize, Warming comes first. It precedes uh, rising levels of atmospheric CO2. So, you know, they, these guys, you'll never hear this from the environmentals, from the leftists, from CNN or New York Times. You'll never hear it. They won't debate. They won't discuss. They won't look at contrarian scientists. They ignore them. Some of the world's leading astrophysicists. I've been talking about world-class scientists. Uh, Henrik Svensmark in Denmark, Abubulo Abdul Samatov from Uzbekistan was a leading Russian scientist, Nir Shaviv, uh, uh, Israeli astrophysicist. They, these guys study the sun climate connection, the role. <laughs> the environmentalist guy said the sun has nothing to do with it. I mean, on the face of it, that's absurd. The sun has nothing to do with warming the earth. I mean, it's just ludicrous. They won't discuss, debate, dispute. They just ignore it. Yeah, I can't remember which scientist it was, but I remember reading one scientist like just pointing out the fact that none of the models can account for clouds. And clouds and how clouds uh, uh, interact with the climate, and 
like right. it makes sense right because like nobody understands like everyone points out at you know like well you know we'll turn earth into venus and it's like no venus has like what is it a thousand times more atmosphere or something ridiculous right like it's got just so much more mass in its atmosphere than we do and they're like well it's just going to turn us into venus it's like no that's not that's not the way the the way it works and we don't really understand how it works we're still learning we can't even model the clouds yeah we don't know climate science is so complicated we don't know much about it. i'll tell you this um CO2 at this point is roughly 420 parts per million. When you tell people that you point, point out, let's let's make let's say 400, you know, to make the arithmetic simple, 400 parts per million, which means the atmosphere, you're 999,600 parts per million are not CO2. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, if they remember the high school chemistry, they'll remember that the atmosphere is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 1% trace gases, of which I don't like eight or 10. Or something with CO2 is one. It's a trace gas in the atmosphere. Uh, no, it's not. We're not going to turn into Venus. The, by the way, one last point on this, guys. During the Ordovician Ice Age, was like 400 some one million years ago. I forget. I forget the numbers. Were the um, I think the CO2 accumulations in the atmosphere. I think were at least 10, maybe 15 times higher than they are today. So it'd be like over 4,000 parts per million. And the Earth was in the grip of a deep ice age. And, and with, you know, that's one data point showing us that carbon dioxide accumulations in the atmosphere are just one, you know, there's a, there's a greenhouse, but it's just one factor of many in the enormously complex web of you know, climate science. And, you know, it's just one, it's, and it, it's, a, it's a secondary factor. It can be overwhelmed by stronger factors. And when it was at 4,000 parts per million and the Earth was in an ice age, well, that shows us there are other stronger factors at work. Yeah, there's all this data out here that you're talking about, and it's like Midsider Lucid, I think, kind of summed it up well in the in the Discord here, where he says that the climate alarmists boil it down to a single variable, and he says dishonest doesn't even begin to cover it. And that's what I think of when I see this this story about the, the Patagonia follower and uh, the Patagonia founder. And there was something else Midsider Lucid said at the beginning of the story. He compared... Uh, what they're doing with that company to the 20th century motor company in Atlas Shrugged. And I actually think that's a fascinating comparison when you think about, you know, using something supposedly for a good end, but it's obviously going to end poorly. And it's sort of the same thing here. Yeah. And before we move on to the next story, um, Daniel had pointed out, this is just a tax shelter. And, and it really is. I mean, it's a way to take, you know, to take their profits and give it to a a nonprofit to then just funnel to all their friends running these climate scams uh, so they can fly around the world on uh, and, and go to all these uh, climate meetings in the you know tropical paradises across the world. That's really what this is. Yeah, and you're right, William, and it's virtue signaling. You know, the, we'll, we'll tell the world, oh, you know, we're, such, we're such humanitarians. We're so concerned about the future of the human race and the environment and, and, and everything, whereas it's uh, it, it's really just it's it's just a gigantic scam. And you know, by what, one one last point, you know, Dr. Patrick Moore, who was a former head of Greenpeace, PhD, called ecology. He got, I guess, with the environmental science today. He keeps arguing. I think he's right uh, that um, atmospheric levels of carbon dioxide are too low, not too high. They should be higher. Because CO2 is not a pollutant. That's a ridiculous claim. It's completely unscientific and false. CO2 is plant food. And the higher the and plant, plants die at rough start dying at roughly 250 parts per million. And we're only at like 420 parts per million. We're not that much higher. 
if we if we could raise the CO2 levels of the atmosphere to say a thousand parts per million, it would green the earth. Uh, it, would, it would have a minimal effect on warming because CO2 levels are a secondary factor in, in warming. And it would green the earth. It's, uh, the plants would literally eat it up. <laughs> it would thereby strengthen the food chain enormously. I think Patrick Moore is right on this. Of course, the environmentalist movement, the IPCC, and those guys, they, if they mention them all, they just dismiss them as a lunatic. They certainly don't want to deal with his arguments and his evidence. And that's something we see continually with all the farce we witness here in the midside is people not wanting to address what's what's really going on. And that's something I actually really appreciate about the next little bit of farce, the next story that I want to talk about. This was something that I actually came across my Twitter feed. It had been uh, retweeted and shared within the sort of more conservative uh, news circles. But I think that uh, this is more complex than even they might give it credit for. So the article is called The Sugar Babies of Stanford University. And it's written by a woman who recently graduated from Stanford. And she's sort of observing and analyzing a cultural trend. Uh, you know, We've talked about William on the show before, sort of the OnlyFans thing, right? And how that's sort of a logical growth from Instagram when people realized, yeah. hey, I don't have to just give my pictures away for free, right? But there's actually something sort of much more insidious going on here. So I'm going to read a paragraph and then sort of go into what I like about this article. So here's the paragraph. Sites like OnlyFans, popular among the pay-to-see-me-naked subset of gig workers, have entered the mainstream in recent years as millions of young women and men turn to it for supplemental income or to chase full careers. Over 170 million others subscribed as customers. Celebrities like Bella Thorne and YouTube's Karina Koff the most well-known and highly paid OnlyFans creators, overshadowed the reality for the vast majority for whom getting nude for strangers nets an average of only about 151 a month and 21 subscribers. By focusing on OnlyFans alone, but, sorry, but focusing on OnlyFans alone ignores the vaster, far more commonplace and socially acceptable enterprise of TikTok thirst traps. And basically what this article goes into is with TikTok thirst traps is the idea that young women and some young, some young men, but they focus on the young women, uh, post pictures online to get male attention. And then there are men from all over the country and all age groups throwing money at them to get personalized attention. And what I like about this article is twofold. One, it starts to talk about, you know, why are people who are at Stanford University, this is considered one of the most prestigious universities in America, right? It's an Ivy League school. Why are women doing this? You know, they, they talk about um, uh, passive income is what they say, right? So that's become sort of a cliche on the internet is, oh, get your passive income streams, right? So they talk about that. But then I really like, William, how this talks about the other side of it. it talks about the male side of it, yeah. where we also see the issues with masculinity in our culture in a story like this. Where you hear the term sugar baby, right? You think of the old school, like, um, uh, Anna, remember Anna Nicole Smith? Was that in the 90s? Is that how old we are now? Yeah, the 90s? Yeah, where she was dating that guy who was really, really old just for his money. And that's a perception you get when you hear the term sugar babies. But this article is pointing out that these girls, their passive income is coming from, like, men in their 30s and early 40s and even 20s in middle America who are working blue-collar jobs which is a weird way for money and attention to be funneled because these type of people, you know, a girl at Stanford and a guy driving a taxi in 
I don't even remember what state it was, so I'm just going to you know throw up hypothetically Mississippi would never connect. Yet here they are, the men are throwing money at these women that they may not even be able to throw at these women just for attention. Yeah, it was it was what struck me also about the article is you know they they kind of hinted at it, but uh, but then they threw in the average like shit like this is all like distributed like with the Pareto distribution, right? You'll have like like a handful of creators that make a ton of money and then most people make no money. We see that on YouTube. We see that on Twitch. I mean, like all these uh, social media sites that have this kind of uh, monetary model, like it's only a few people that actually make a ton of money and the trade is Well, not we're not exactly on... rolling in the dough here, William, with this podcast. <laughs> this is uh, not a passion not project. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but this is this is common, right? Like this is how this, this stuff works. And people look at the top creators and say, well, that, you know, I could do that, but they can't, right? Like that's not the way this works in reality. And then, it, like you said, it's, it's destructive to everyone who's involved in this. Like it's, there are, I, there are people I, I, I can, I have heard of people who are happily like in a relationship still paying like uh, only fans or these TikTok uh, creators, right. For the attention. Like what kind of like this is a this is a screwed up like psychology, right? If that it, like what are you not getting or what are you getting from this that's not destructive? Yes, this is a sad, this is a sad case, isn't it? I mean, I get you know on Facebook and and other venues, I, you know, I get photographs from women all the time who are very attractive. You know, I certainly look at the photographs. Ooh, she is hot, uh, and maybe. The person posting the photographs is actually the woman in the in the photo, because anybody could put photos on the internet, right? Could be a dude, for all I know, posting posting photos of this hot this hot chick. But uh, you know, I I I I admire beautiful women as much as the next hetero guy, and uh, you know, I like sex as much as the next guy. But this just I don't it just just seems kind of sad. It's even if I wasn't in a relationship, it just seems kind of a sad way. Uh, to get female attention rather than rather than go out and you know make an effort to, to meet women. There's a lot of women in the world. A lot of them are good people. A lot of them are attractive. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's just kind of sad that that these dudes would throw their money in this rather than you know going out and meeting the woman. Or or even perplexing, like you said, guys, um, somebody who's in a relationship and even considers themselves you know in the relationship happily uh, is so desperate for the attention of a of a hot young chick that he's gonna you know throw money at a, at a total stranger like this, it's sad. You know, this seems kind of a waste. Well, the the point you made about the uh, the pictures and the, it could be anyone posting it. That's actually in the article where these girls say, you know, the guy will pay for like a certain length of a text conversation and they'll just hand the phone off to one of their male friends and let them because it doesn't matter. They're just pretending to have a relationship with the guy for money. Right. And that's that. Yeah. I mean, like you're saying, that's that's really sad, and it's like, the question is, what leads to this psychology? Where to, to connect with what William said, that to be in a relationship, what's missing from your relationship, or what's missing from your old psychology, that you're okay participating in this? Really, it's it's evasion, ultimately. Yeah, there's a lot of people, I guess, who's I don't want to be judgmental. I'll be judgmental on people who I think are evil. And there's plenty of that in the world. But somebody whose life is just kind of sad or who's experiencing life as, as empty, um, 
yeah, I just want to be more encouraging. Like, um, there's a whole yeah. bunch of there's a whole bunch of good things in the world that you could fill your life with. There's got there's got to be something in the world that really fires you up. In, you know, as, in terms of education, career, friends, romantic love, travel, you know, the arts, sports. There's got to be all there's all kinds of things that might you know enable you to live passionately. That and this is kind of a sad sack. You know, it's kind of a sad sack thing. You throw money, it was kind of, kind of, you know, hapless. You throw money at some chick who may or may not be be female, never mind, you know, attractive. <laughs> you throw money at somebody who is a kind of, it's a, it's a scam. It's a way for these, for these chicks. So, and then, and they may well be dudes doing this, putting up just pictures of hot babes, you know, and then claiming it. Claiming his name is Diamond, you know, or Crystal or something, and uh, <laughs> and and raking it and raking in dough. It's just it's a, it's just kind of hapless. And I, I would I would I'd want to encourage these guys who uh, you know work in construction in Iowa or whatever, um, you know, that they could find meaning in their lives and not and not have to waste their time and their money in, in this kind of meaningless, uh, not even a relationship, this meaningless uh, nominal relationship. And by the way, if somebody is working construction in Iowa. Uh, where, wherever working construction is a really positive job. You're building things, you're doing things with your hands, you're making things work. You know, you're constructing, not destructing. It's it's very it's very positive uh, career. And, and 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 if that's the case, then you, you've laid a foundation, you know, and you can build on that with more positive things in your life. And you make the money. You can, you can use the money to build up, build on that foundation and and create more positive things in your life rather than waste your time and money on on this this scam, which is what it is. I'm glad you said that about uh, the the construction workers in Iowa because I was really worried for a second that we were alienating our audience of the construction workers in Iowa and the taxi drivers in Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> William, yeah. did you have something you wanted to say? No, no, I'm good. All right. Okay, so I want to actually connect to something you said, Andy, with our next story, because it's actually interesting. I really liked your point about, you know, these people aren't evil and to have empathy for them. I think that's really, really important. But for the next story... My question becomes like, where is the line? Where is the line here? Because I think the end result of this this teacher's actions is evil, but I wonder the intentions of this teacher and if they're just bought into, as you were saying earlier, virtue signaling and you know wanting to belong and be part of the the correct side of things. And I think that this will lead in also very well to the discussion of your your new book. So this story is from NBC News. It says, Texas teacher on administrator leave after telling students to call pedophiles, quote, minor attracted persons. And this, William, I think we've talked about this term popping up on the Internet more yeah. and more often, haven't yeah. we? Yeah, we have. It's, yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's uh, pretty gross because it's, um, it's part of a, uh, you know, the sort of like cluster B psychology that's rampant in our culture of, uh, of forced teaming, right? Where... They're yes. supposed to call them minor attractive persons and then uh, somehow put them in the LGBTQIA LMNOP alphabet uh, group, right? It's, right. it's really and disgusting. The, the, and the forced teaming is what I'm talking about is it, it's tough with something like this, right? Again, the end action is evil. But when I see a person like this, do they feel like they've been forced teamed? Right? Yeah. So this yeah. is this is this is the, the news story, and then you know we'll throw it to Andy and see what he thinks. A teacher in El Paso, Texas, is on administrative leave and facing termination after she told students to call pedophiles, quote, minor attractive persons in an incident that was captured on video and shared on social media, according to the city's school district. In an 18-second clip, 
the Franklin High School teacher can be heard telling students to, quote, stop calling them that. You're not allowed to label people like that, end quote. Which, I mean, I'm just going to say right there, who made up this rule that we can't label people, right? <laughs> it's the same thing about don't diagnose people. You know, don't, right. you know, you can't, you can't look at someone who's doing something really evil and say, like, they're, like, mentally deranged or evil. You can't do that. It's like every time I see a person wandering in the middle of the street asking for money who looks like they haven't eaten in days and they're malnourished, and I say, that's a drug addict. I can't say that, right? No, no, right. that'd be diagnosing someone. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, just, that's just a nutrition-deprived person. <laughs> We're not going to call them that, the teachers heard saying in the video. We're to call them MAPS, Minor Attractive Persons. So don't judge people just because they want to have sex with a five-year-old, which that may be the most farcical thing I've ever read on this show, by the way. What? <laughs> if, if it wasn't so evil, yeah, I would, I would agree with you. It reminds me of uh, Spotlight. You guys, you guys have, saw, have seen that film, right? Um, with Michael Keaton. I have not the, seen it, but no, I know of it. One. Yeah, I know of it, yeah. Yeah, oh, well, it's brutal, uh, but it's, it's a true story. You know, the uh, a lot of these priests, well, it took place in Boston, and you know, a lot of the priests, a number of the priests were molesting little kids, girls, sometimes mostly boys, you know, and uh, the, the, uh, the Globe, right? It was the, the, the Boston Globe exposed, exposed the story. And uh, the, 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 most, the most horrifying thing about it was it's not just that the priests were molesting little kids. That's bad enough. But that the church hierarchy knew, and they weren't turning these guys over to law enforcement. They would, you know, they would simply... They would simply pay hush money to the victims and the families and then shuttle the offending priest off to a different parish where you can just start, you know, start over again. And everything is going on all over the world. So these priests aren't pedophiles. They're not sex, you know, not child molesters. They're just minor attractive persons. Anyway, it's, it's, it's really horrible. It's, this is evil. You, you know, we have to protect children from these predators. We, you know, we need to protect adults. From these from from predators, but children in particular, I I, I mean they're they're helpless in in the in the face of uh, in the grip of an adult who who will molest them, and it and it really can scar a child for a long time, maybe for the rest of his or her life. So the, the, look, pedophiles may be you know mentally ill and need maybe maybe they don't belong in prison, maybe they belong in a psychiatric institution. They need. They need psych, you know, psychological help. That may be, but but where, but they can't be out on the street doing this, doing this to children. This is the children have to be protected. To say, to to argue against that is just this teacher is just. I have no problems condemning her as evil. What, what she's saying, you know, to protect pedophiles, change the language so we're not even recognizing what a, what a horrific crime this is against children. This this is this is this is this is just evil. I have no problem labeling. It. Yeah, yeah, that's not that's not a a, a, a tiger. It's a, um, a, a human attracted feline, right? It's a, it's not a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's just, I mean, it's how bad it's getting. We're not we're not just failing to protect the rights of adults to their own body and 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 their own property and their own life. Now we're failing to protect the rights of children. And I think in the past, at least many, many, many people would agree. You know, from the mothers who you know love children to you know to uh, the mom, God, an apple pie, family values, religious crowd, to, to, to almost everybody. You know that children have to be protected. Now we have teachers in the government schools 
you know, claiming, well, that who teach the children, who will, who will claim, well, the children don't have to be protected anymore. Pedophiles aren't really pedophiles. Just, we'll, normal, we'll normalize this. We'll just normalize this kind of behavior. Uh, it's, it's, it's horrific. And, and that's the, the thing that really gets me about this story. As someone who does teach, you know, in, in a government school here in Florida is, I don't know how you can be in a classroom with these kids and first of all, not recognize the difference between them and adults, but also not recognize that they're not really armed to protect themselves from the world. I mean, I'll admit, you know, and if someone listens to this and I get fired because of it, I'll admit that sometimes classes just become conversations of like, these are the basic things you need to know because a kid will say something. And I'm, I just think to myself, if you continue without that knowledge or with that impression, you're going to get yourself in really bad situations in the future. So sometimes classes will just become a discussion with my students about what they need to know. And it's particularly insidious that this person said this to these students, either without being able to realize they need to be protected or knowing that they are in such need of protection and still doing this to further essentially disarm these kids. It's horrifying. Uh, it's normalizing child molestation. You know, I, I had an old girlfriend who was as, as far left as you could possibly be. And um, uh, she, wasn't, she wasn't really strong on crime. You know, she felt, felt sorry for criminals and stuff. Classic stereotype uh, in that regard. But she did make an exception for child molesters. She used, to, she used to say to me, child molesters ought to be shot. And I don't think she was exaggerating. I think I think she meant it literally. I said, no, honey, I think they should be put in psychiatric institutions. I don't know about shooting them, but they certainly should be off the street and not allowed to, you know, not allowed to molest children. And most people, I think even today, even with the erosion of respect for individual rights, I think most Americans still think that the child has a right to his or her own life, even if they don't think of it in those terms at some visceral level, they feel it, I think. I remember when my daughter was eight, up until that time, you know, I used to take her into the men's room with me when we were out and about, because uh, well, I couldn't let her go into the ladies' room by herself. At eight years old, she said she was ready to go into the ladies' room. She said to me, stand by the door, Daddy, she said to me. So I did. I, I was going to do it anyway, whether she said it or not. But so I'm standing by the door of the ladies' room, and some woman comes by, and she says to me, should you be standing right here? You might see something, you know, that you shouldn't, that you shouldn't see. You know, I guess she thought I was standing by the door of the ladies' room so I could get some beaver shots, you know. Um, but uh, I was a little annoyed because I'm, you know, was thinking about my, my daughter. And I was, I was about to say, listen, listen you officious little harridan. You know, but I, I control myself. And I said to her, my eight, I very calmly said, my eight-year-old daughter is inside alone. And, and she's the woman said, oh, you know, she didn't need to hear anything else. Say no more. She said, I'm sorry. She said, you stay right there, you know. And. You, you know, you, you know, you stay right there in case your daughter needs you. And I think that, you know, her res that response, I think, is is even today, I think, would be typical of most American citizens, um, that the children have to be protected from these from these horrified child molesters. So we need to, you know, <laughs> we, we need to get the, the child molesters and their supporters and their defenders out of the out of the government schools and out of the religious stations where they have access, you know, they have access to ch to children. 
So we know we we need to do that. And and I strongly recommend the film Spotlight, by the way, for everybody. It really shows, really shows how horrifying that is. It's a call to action to 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 get the problem with child molestation under control. Well, we we usually talk about movies, and we weren't going to this week. So there you go, everyone. There's your review of a movie for the week, Spotlight. Check it out. But instead of that, we're going to talk about uh, your new book, Andy. And I think it you know works perfectly with what we were just talking about because I think it's doing more than getting the the child molesters and the pedophiles out of the school. I think there's a lot we need to get out of the school. So your new book is called Why Johnny Still Can't Read or Write or Understand Math and What We Can Do About It. And uh, people can read all about the background and, you know, the index and everything, the table of contents in uh, andrewbernstein.net. You go there and it's, it's, it's right on the front page. Click on it. So you guys should go and check that out and read all about it. Uh, the well, bill, just, the go, book. Or, or just, just, just go up on Amazon and, you know, and, and punch in the title, Why Johnny Still Can't Read or Write or Understand Math, and, and, and what we could do about it, and go, go right to its Amazon page. But yeah, you, it's available. You, they could read it on my website also. You're right. I was trying to get you some traffic, man. <laughs> oh, well, well, thank you, bro. I appreciate it. <laughs> so yeah, the book. Trying... Go, ahead. go ahead. I was just trying to get some sales, so you yeah. can go on the Amazon page. So, okay, go to the Amazon page instead and buy the book. All right, don't listen to me. Listen to the author. <laughs> All right, the book is uh, split into two parts. Part one is the current crisis of American schooling and how we got there. And and part two is how we can fix the educational disaster. Now, I don't want to give everything away from your book. I don't want you to just, you know, make it so people don't want to read it. But I thought we could kind of talk about things kind of in that progression. And the first thing I want to to talk about was from my own experience, right? I, I started teaching in public school in February of 2020, and that was right before the COVID pandemic, right? And then, you know, we had spring break, and spring break became, instead of one week, it was two weeks, and then all of a sudden, we were in online classes. And what I wanted to ask you, Andy, is do you think that that's what sort of peeled the curtain back for parents? Because for me, teaching... You know, the online classes weren't really classes. Students would honestly just, we couldn't tell them to turn their cameras on, which I I actually kind of understand with the conversation we just had, right? I kind of get that. And then we couldn't make them participate. So they would honestly mute their computer, turn their camera off, and they wouldn't even be in the room most of the time. And if they were, they were playing video games or watching a movie or something, especially with, you know, all the content that was being released or is being released. So I found that, for a while, it was literally like I was using my podcasting skills because I would just end up talking for 45 minutes about whatever the topic was for the day with getting no responses back. And I have to imagine parents saw that and likewise saw when I had students who didn't do any work, yet they were still passed. And it, at least here in Osceola County in Florida, for the first semester, first quarter, they just said everyone passes. They didn't really count the grades. So do you think that's what's really started this conversation where people are starting to pay attention to you being able to write a book like this nowadays? I think I think the pandemic definitely accelerated it. There's this whole constellation of problems with the uh, government schools. And I think over that period of time, mom and dad were, were, were pretty shocked. They got an eyeful. One is the leftist propaganda that goes on, you know, in the schools about critical race theory and man-made climate change. So socialism is superior capitalism, or white people are evil, and so on and so forth. Uh, 
And then another is the severely diluted academics, how little uh, learning actually goes on in the school, even if they were in propaganda. Again, I mean, without mentioning names, uh, my daughter, is, who's, who's a junior in college now, was uh, her senior year in high school. This was um, this is a suburban, considered a top public school, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a wealthy suburban town in Westchester County north of New York City. It's supposed to be a very, very good public school. It's a very good reputation. Their senior English class, you know, you know, what did they read? And I can remember, you know, I can remember going back to when I was in high school as a kid in Brooklyn. I was such a troublemaker. They kicked me out of every advanced placement class, every honors and honors background class. Uh, I was always a trouble at school. And uh, <laughs> I was sitting there in a garden variety English class, 12th grade, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and looking back on the public schools, because I went to the public schools K through 12, looking back on it now, I'm not going to say it was so good and, and, and now it's bad. It was always bad. It's just gotten worse. But even then, um, I remember reading Beth in 12th grade English class. I remember reading Crime and Punishment. We did, and I remember you know, writing papers and working with the English teacher on, on the papers. Uh, well, for my, daughter, for my daughter's 12th grade English class a few years ago, what did they read? Nothing. Nada, zilch, the null set, zero. They spent the, they spent the year working on their college essay. Well, you know, if if they had been writing, uh, reading, and writing papers from you know for at least paragraphs of first and second grade on, and then papers as they got you know, a little more advanced, how much work on their college essays would they even need? Uh, what did they, what about the kids who weren't going to college? I mean, that's all the more reason why twelfth grade English should expose them to some of the great works of literature. They should be reading Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, Charles Dickens, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Jane Austen, you know, authors like that. Uh, Ayn Rand, I, I would certainly throw in. Uh, you know, they should, they, the whole a whole year of, of high school goes by, they, and, and they, they, didn't, they didn't have any reading. They, they, they read zero in their literature class, the top suburban uh, public high school. So, so I think parents got to see, oh my God, the, le- the levels of learning, if we could even dignify it with that term, are so low, it's unbelievable, uh, you know, along with the propaganda. And, and more and more parents decide to homeschool. The number, the number of parents homeschool coming out of the pandemic is, is high. I hope, I hope that trend continues. And my good buddy Brad Thompson, who you know well, Justin, you know, at, at Clemson, told me that um, one of the leading demographics of people turned to homeschooling are black Americans, which is a very good sign. So, um, excuse me. So, yeah, I think I think um, parents got an eyeful more than they even normally did because uh, because everything went online, you know, during the uh, during the pandemic. And I think that definitely fueled the parents rebellion. <laughs> and notice the politicians now. Terry McAuliffe was one in Virginia. Who, you know, the parents are now up in arms. They want they want the, the kids to get much more rigorous a- academics and much less, you know, political indoctrination. And Terry McAuliffe said, well, parents shouldn't have any say in what the schools teach their children. I mean, you what? Your parents don't have a, shouldn't have a say? And it, the truth is parents should have 100% control over it. But you're, you're right. The pandemic exposed parents to the horrors of what's going on in the government schools these days. Yeah, it's really great to hear what you just said about the statistic about black Americans are homeschooling more often now. I mean, I think if, you know, the 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 narrative holds true and they don't trust the system well then yeah withdraw them from the system 
Yeah, and hey, that's just, the best and, thing that could happen. And Justin, like, I, I don't think anyone's done the stats on it, or at least I haven't seen it in any of the, any of the media yet. But think of all the people who left college and didn't come back because they were paying their full tuition and not getting any of the things that they would normally get, right, on campus and not getting an education because all the classes were remote, right? Like, we already yeah. know that men are, are, are going to college and finishing college is uh, less and less and less. There's a ton of people that just left, like, checked out the education system completely uh, in the upper levels as well. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's, that's certainly true. So somebody you mentioned, Andy, is, you know, our, our mutual friend, uh, uh, Brad Thompson, right? And on his Substack recently, he did a uh, a series of articles on the education system. I don't know if you read it, but I would recommend if, you know, you're interested in Andy's book to read that and read Dr. Thompson's uh, essays. But he was talking about, like, what the causes are, and he went into, you know, more of the philosophical side, which I'm sure you did as well. So that's what I'm interested to hear, especially because you point—you have a whole chapter— on pointing out how much of a villain John Dewey is. So what do you think the causes are that have led to, as you just said, I mean, that's been my experience. Students don't even want to read books. They haven't read books. I reference books they should know at their age, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. So how did it, how did we get here? What are the causes? Good question. Um, it's, it goes back to around the time of World War One. It's, it's literally 100 years ago. Prior to that, American education was superb. You know, and I, and I have a lot of a lot of proxy data in the book. You know, showing that the literacy levels, the, what was read, you know, in, you know, in the early 19th century, when the population in the United States was like 20 million, Walter Scott's novels, James Fenimore Cooper's novels, which are not easy to read, they sold millions of copies to a population of 20 million. There's a lot of a lot of proxy data showing that American literacy levels were very high. Right, right around it's right around that that changes right early 20th century. Um, you know, as socialist ideas become more prevalent in, in, the, in the United States, uh, and, and a lot of the intellectuals, including the, the professors of education, they're, they're appalled by the individualism of American culture. The, uh, they, they consider it selfish, and they want to socialize the children. They want the kids to basically serve the state first, uh, rather, rather than pursue their own um, their, their, you know, their own self-interest. So, you know, the, the intellectuals of the early 20th century, John Dewey's a leading example. William Hurd Kilpatrick at Columbia University Teachers College is, a, is, is another. But the intellectuals by that time, for the most part, there's obviously some, some noble exceptions. They were basically socialists, anti-capitalists, and they wanted to, they wanted to use the education system to, um, to change the politics in the United States. And so this is when IQ testing first came in, the Stanford Binet test first came in. And, and so the goal was to IQ test the kids this is like, you know, circa 1920s. Uh, so it's 100 years ago. IQ test the kids, find the brightest, and they'll get the college program. They'll get the full academic program. You know, they'll, they'll teach them to read and write and, you know, and do mathematical calculation, give them history. You know, and these kids will go on to college and they'll be society's future leaders. They will govern in the legislature and in the classroom. The rest of us, the overwhelming preponderance of American kids, we don't need to think that much. We don't, you know, we don't need we don't need much academic education. Uh, you know, what we need is more practical skills. We need, you know, driver's ed, sex ed, hygiene, varsity sports came in at that point as part of the, you know, the commitment to physical development uh, rather than focus on intellectual development and you know, vocational skills, wood shop and metal shop in the urban areas, agriculture in the in the rural areas. Here's the key. The 
the goal of Dewey and William Hurt Kilpatrick, who ran the Columbia University Teachers College, you know, for I don't know about 30 years when when Teachers College was training thousands and thousands and thousands of American teachers from all over the country. The goal was for for most of us to uh, be to teach us to be good at our jobs and to obey the wise rules of the state. That was the goal. And you know, and I know you guys know the history of philosophy, and many of your customers probably do. This is Plato's vision. You know, it's the the governance of the intellectual elite. The rest of us obey. The rest of us are good at what we do. Butcher baker, candlestick maker, and we obey we obey the wise rulers of the state. So they severely dumbed down the curriculum for most for most students. And 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 they 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 one of the key things is to eliminate phonics, the war against phonics as the method to teach reading. It, it is the effective method to teach reading. And Dewey was opposed to it. And he was opposed, he was, look, this is not a mystery. This is hidden in plain sight. Dewey said in so many words, you don't want the kids to read well at an early age. You don't want them gaining knowledge at an early age because that very naturally passes over into selfishness. It's like his exact words. That very, that, you know, self uh, self-directed learning and, and learning how to think independently very easily passes into selfishness. And then those kids will want to guide their own lives by means of their own mind rather than uh, rather than focus on just being good at their vocation and be willing to conform to society and obey the state. There's the key uh, philosophy that destroyed the American educational system right there. It comes from the top. From John yep. Dewey at the philosophy department at Columbia, William Hurt Kilpatrick, his main disciple, we're in the philosophy of ed program in Teachers College, Columbia. These are these are the main perpetrators of this. Yeah, growing up, I you know I was in uh, the government schools in the eighties and nineties, and uh, they were rolling up the uh, the gifted program behind me. Uh, they they cut you know the the they were identifying gifted kids, and and we were getting um, separate classes with better teachers. And when I was in junior high, all of a sudden uh, there were the new fad was outcome based education. We're just going to put all the kids together. Um, regardless of their skill level or 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 motivation or anything, right? And just uh, teach them all the same uh, a slop. So I went from doing, you know, I think in 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 seventh grade that we were doing high school level math to now I'm doing eighth grade math with everyone else and uh, wow. redoing things well, I had done years before, right? And wow. uh, it had terrible consequences. Like I, I, there were kids that I knew that didn't make it past the age of twenty five because. You know, you take away the challenge and the excitement of learning at that young age, and there's a couple dark places, especially the male students go right. And it's and and some of my friends and 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 even grow up in a really small rural town. So my friends didn't make it. Yeah, you're right. Dark places, drugs, alcohol, indiscriminate sex, violence. There's a number of of dark places, and and, and school invasions. Don't think that the school invasions of since Columbine. Don't think that that. The uh, the horrors of going to the public schools. Don't think that 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 doesn't play a role in it. It does. But I want to ask you something, William. So so you went to school in California in the eighties and nineties. No, no, I went in Michigan. I grew up in Michigan, oh, Michigan. a small town okay. in Michigan. Yeah. Well, even then you were lucky because in that in that time slot in California in the eighties and nineties, they did away with phonics altogether, and, and they and they used a version of the whole word method to teach reading known as whole language, where uh, anyway, you know, let, me, let me explain this because this is really important. Phonics, of course, means you teach the kids to, to sound the alphabet. You teach them to sound out the letters. 
So there's only 26 letters in the alphabet. And was it 40, 40 somewhat sounds that that makes? And then the kids, once they once they master the alphabet, they can decode the vast majority of words in the English language, and they can read. But the the educators have been the, the teachers' colleges, schools of education have been opposed to that for 100 years, and they preferred variations of what they call the whole the whole word method, what's book say or whole language or whatever. But the variations on a theme. The theme is. You don't teach the kids to sound out the letters of the word. You don't, in some cases, don't even permit them to. But rather, you, you want them to focus on the whole word. Look at the whole word, the shape of the word, and then in the context of it, try and guess, you know, at, at what the word is. That's a terrible method to teach reading. And in California, in the in late 80s and the early 90s, this is the method they used. And not surprisingly, the, this is California. The uh, you know the, the reading test scores just plummeted to the point where where it's like 50 percent of fourth graders were way below grade level. They were they were reading about the same. Like, I don't want to. I don't trust any guys. I don't want to miss the, uh, the the cab drivers in Mississippi. But they were that, the California kids were the, at the same level of reading as in Mississippi, which right. is to say, yeah, very low because because they they conducted a war on phonics in the, in the late 80s and, and early. It was the parents, of course, who rebelled against this finally and, uh, you know, insisted that phonics be used to, to, teach, to teach the kids reading. But the educators, again, they don't want to teach phonics. And it would be shocking if we thought that their opposition to phonics, it would be shocking if we thought that they want the kids to read effectively. Their opposition to phonics would be sh- shocking. It's only when we realize they don't want the kids to read effectively which is they, they don't want them thinking too much. They don't want them thinking independently. They, they don't want them thinking they could guide their own lives by their own judgment. They don't have to obey Hillary Clinton, you know, or the, the other wise rulers of, of the state. They don't want them to, to read well. They don't want them to master academic subjects. Once, once we understand that, the whole rottenness of the government school system then becomes intelligible. Well, and I think the level of rottenness is something that really we can touch on here when we start going into the second half of your book, you know, what we can do about it. And you've alluded to it a few times, teacher training, because this was a hundred years ago, what you're talking about. And, you know, they've been against phonics since, as you said, and they've been all about, you know, decreasing critical thinking to just do your job and follow the state type deal, not do your job in the Bill Belichick way, do your job in the, you know, the, the communistic way, socialistic way. And I think the interesting thing is, you know, you're saying they, you know, want it to be a certain way. But I think a lot of these teachers are just the outcomes of this method as well, because something I've especially seen since teaching, right? I didn't get into teaching by going to a a professional education college or anything. I learned what I wanted to learn. I worked jobs and then I, I realized I enjoyed teaching and I enjoyed helping people improve themselves helping people learn how to express their individuality better, to discover and then express their individuality. But a lot of these teachers go to professional education programs to become a teacher. And I've always wondered, how can you become an educator if you aren't an expert at anything? I mean, I remember when I was taking the, I had to take tests to become certified. And in one of them, one of the English teachers kept telling me about this question about Russian authors. And she said, oh, it's such a hard question. And then I, I get the question on my test, and the answer was Isaac Asimov. And I went to her after and asked her, and she had no idea how, who Isaac Asimov was. 
And I think that speaks to exactly what you're you're saying, Andy, where how can you be a high school English teacher and not know who Isaac Asimov is? Like that should <laughs> well, be an essential author. I'm, la- I'm laughing. It's not funny. There's nothing funny about it at all. But a high school English teacher doesn't know the guy who, who wrote the found- not only the foundation trilogy, but Asimov wrote like 200 or 300 books. But uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I got a true story for you guys right along those lines, Justin. So uh, 1999, 2000, Cliff's Notes came to me. They, they want to hire me to write the Cliff's Notes for Ayn Rand's novel. And if, if people don't know what Cliff's Notes are, they're study guides. You know, and, they, and, they're, and they're generally pretty good. When I was a student in the 60s and 70s, and Cliff's Notes started, I think, in the 50s in Lincoln, Nebraska. And um, some guy named Cliff, I forget his last name, you know, wrote notes for the all these people. He was an avid reader, wrote notes for all these books that, that he realized, hey, I can monetize. And so he, he started Cliff's Notes. But uh, they're usually pretty good. They're very down to earth. They they don't, you know, they usually uh, tie any tie their thematic analysis back to the events of the plot. They don't float off, you know, beyond the beyond the Van Allen belt somewhere. Um, and so the high school teachers and I was an English major in college. They always railed us, don't read the Cliff Notes. You know, not because they thought the Cliff Notes weren't good. They acknowledged Cliff Notes were good. They didn't want us reading notes in lieu of reading the novels. So. But by 2000, when Cliff's Notes came to me, a lot had changed. You know, the, the, the overwhelming demographic for Cliff's Notes back in the day was high school and college kids. Well, by 2000, a lot had changed. And the general editor at Cliff's Notes told me, he's a good guy, but I won't mention his name. Um, he told me so many words. He said, our main demographic now is high school English teachers who either have never read the novels that, that they're assigned to teach or worse, don't understand them. So they need to read the Cliff's Notes so that, that they can so that they could teach, you know, Wuthering Heights, uh, you know, or create expectations or, or, or something like that. And, and, and this segues us nicely into the, the key point about teacher training, and that is the overwhelming majority of states, maybe all, in order to be teaching high schools, uh, I'm thinking even more so the elementary school, you need a degree in education. So, so the future math teachers aren't studying a lot of math, they're studying education, they take an education course, and the future English teachers aren't studying a lot of English. They take their, they're taking education courses. So math majors, uh, the example I use in the book is University of Connecticut. Um, math, math majors, and this, but this is true with regard to education programs around the country. Math majors at UConn are taking substantially more math courses than future math teachers at UConn or most other colleges, any other college, because the future math teachers are taking education courses. So the teachers come out of the, te- uh, the education programs with very little content. They don't know a lot of content, which is why they have to read Cliff's Notes, you know, in, in, in order to teach a tale of two cities. Uh, and so this is, the, this is the one major, of many, of many, but one major flaw here. To train teachers, they need to be experts in content. Even even if teaching method, which is taught in the education program, was valid, which in many cases it isn't, a lot of many cases it's a lot of garbage. But even the method taught was good. Method is useless to a teacher if he doesn't know the content. Content, 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 content comes first. I'll tell you this: I'm considered a a very good teacher. I have several Teacher of the Year awards. If I had to do teacher training. For somebody who really knows that the content, and I'm not, I'm not, I was never a good math student, but even with math, you know, if they really know math and they know arithmetic and algebra and 
trig and everything. I could teach them to teach. There's a whole, it, it, it take one course, you know, at the end of their college. doesn't take four years of college to learn how to teach. One course to people who know their content. That's one major problem. You know, in, in the school system today. Yeah, that sounds incredibly teachers, inverted. Teachers Can you imagine if if your doctor, if your if your brain surgeon was someone who went right. to a professional education, and now they're going to teach you brain surgery? We don't do that in fields that connected to reality, right? Like it's it's an incredible inversion. Right, right, exactly right. The teachers need the, the future math teachers need to study math. The future history teachers need to study history. In fact. Speaking of history, they eliminated history 100 years ago, renamed it social study, which is a vague, euphemistic term, could mean anything. So they teach a little bit of history, but very little. So I have college kids, and this is, this is typical. These are, by the way, these are good kids. They're good American kids, but they just don't know anything. So get this. A couple of years ago, it was right before we went online, you know, with the pandemic. So it would have been like February 2020. Uh, Win class, and it's a logic class. Lots of college logic class, for God's sake. So I like to bring a lot of examples. Of, I like to tie this, yeah, this abstractus to reality. So these are these are twenty kids. Arithmetic is simply twenty kids, and they're all American kids. They're all you know born and reared and educated here. I figured, yeah, yeah, I don't even remember the context, but I figured James Madison would be a pretty safe example. So I said you know, about James. I started talking about Madison, and uh, they, a lot of the kids looking at me blankly. I said, you guys know who James Madison? Was? Well, well, 10 out of 20 knew that James Madison had been the president of the United States. Um, yeah, 10 out of 20. 10 out of 20 never heard of him. And, and zero of 20 knew that he had been the lead author of the U.S. Constitution and virtually the sole author of the Bill of Rights. Zero of 20 college kids, all Americans, knew that. 10 of 20, 50%, never heard of, never heard of James Madison. Uh, I mean, my joy hit the floor. I didn't want to yell at them because it's not their fault. It's a school for they don't teach American history, although they teach very little American history. And when they do teach American history, very often they use Howard Zinn's textbook. You know, Zinn was not just a Marxist professor, he was a member of the Communist Party. And his, his text, what's the name of it? The People's History of the United States, is pure communist propaganda. And that, that's what's widely taught to the extent that American history is taught at all. So, yeah, the, the, the history teachers aren't studying history, they're studying education. The, the chemistry teachers in high school aren't studying chemistry, they're studying education, so on and so forth. The teachers are ignorant of their subject matter. That is one basic problem. There's a hundred others, but that's one. Yeah, I mean, I have a I have a similar story to what you were just talking about, Andy, and that, you know, obviously my last name is Polish. And, you know, there aren't a lot of Polish people outside of like Chicago and the Northeast. So, you know, living in Florida, I often get asked, like, what's your last name? Or people will ask me if it's German. Students will ask me if it's German. And then invariably, when, you know, they're confusing Polish people and German people, I have to explain there's a difference. And then they ask what it is. And then uh, I find out a lot of kids don't know what the Holocaust is. So I'm a debate teacher or speech teacher, and I end up teaching about the Holocaust for 45 minutes, just so they have some background information on it. So Yeah, it's it's pathetic. They don't teach... They don't teach history or what they teach, but they teach very little history. And there's no surprise that American students on international tests score so low compared to, you know, students from many European and, and Asian countries, because in, in many of the European Asian countries, they teach the academic program much more fully and deeply than they do in the United States. They teach 
more math than in America. They teach more literature than in America. They teach more history than in America. They teach more science than in America. So they teach use phonics to teach reading in the in these many European and, and Asian countries. And so it's, it's not a surprise that those kids study uh, those kids score substantial. Not that not that you know standardized tests are the be all and end all of schooling, but it's one data point you know that we could use. And it's no surprise that the European and Asian kids very often score much higher on these, these tests than American kids do. It's not like European or Asian kids are smarter than American kids. It's that they're much better school. Definitely, definitely. And something we've sort of been uh, dancing around here in this whole conversation is the, the, the title of your last chapter. And without giving the whole thing away, the, the, the title is What Schooling Could and Should Be Like. So can you give us a little bit of a tease of like what you think schooling could and should be like? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, you know. I just want to um, preface before I answer your question, Justin. Uh, philosophy of education is a very complex field, and I don't claim to be a master of it. I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. You know, after all, and there's many different theories, and even experts, experts in any field, you probably know, like to wrangle over the. You know, the world's leading physicists will wrangle over, you know, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I have some thoughts. This first thing, first thing. You know, I, I would say about you know improving education is even before we get to, you know even before we get to that, I think uh, preschooling. You know, the earlier we go, the 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 at start the education, the better it is. Preschooling is uh, enormously important, and I think one thing every parent can do for their kids is they had that I did this with my daughter when you know when she was two, and uh, uh, borders were still open then. Not anymore, but you go to Barnes and Noble, go to the library. And I always let Penny, my daughter, pick out a book that she wanted. And, and, and she, she was two or three years old. She picked out some goofy, you know, story about dogs that could fly, you know, and stuff like that. But the point is, you let the kid pick it, pick it up because you want him or her to be interested. And then, you know, she'd sit down and pat the floor next to her and say, sit down, Daddy, read to me. And so what? All these goofy stories, you know. That, but, but she was two or three years old, and she found it fun. So the first thing you do, and it's not hard, is you show kids that books are fun, that books have cool stuff in them, you know? So we go to the park and we ride bikes and we, you know, we play catch and, you know, you know, she got older and could shoot baskets, you know, we, we even played basketball, but then, but then she was reading well. But, uh, you know, when she was little, we'd do all these fun things and we'd, and we'd read or, or I'd read to her. And so she found that books were fun. Then, once the kid's motivated, once the kid knows, you know, that there's a lot of cool stuff in books that are interesting, then she, or he, as the case may be, wants to read for himself, uh, not have to rely on mom or dad or the teacher. And then using phonics, systematic phonics, you teach the kids the alphabet, the sounds of all the letters, the sound of the combination of letters. By the time the child is four, certainly by five, you could teach the child at home to read. And it's not hard. And then the whole world of knowledge is open to that child. And that's the single most important. Reading is the single most important cognitive skill. And every parent can do it at home. Uh, and not not relying on the schools to, to do it. So that that's the first thing I should say. Let me this way: parents should be in charge of education, not the government. Parents. Uh, okay, but what could education be like? My um, this 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 is my theory. And, you know, so there's any number of experts who would probably disagree with me. But I think first of all, reading is the most important skill. I would you know, start the day with that. The first class. Be an hour. Let's let's say we're starting, you know, with with, with non-readers, you know, very young. The younger the younger the better. I, I teach college, but elementary schools is, is much more fundamental. Um, 
we and, and again, I would start out, have a whole bunch of kids' books there, and let every day let one of the students pick out a book, and then I'd sit, have the teacher sit and read to them. So, so you know, so, whether it's Peter Pan or The Secret Garden or Random Green Gables, a whole bunch of kids' books that the kids are fascinated by reading to them so that they're fascinated by the books and they want to learn to read. And then, you know, after a few weeks of that or a month of that, you could very easily teach, use the phonics, teach the kids to read. And by, you know, within a few months of the school year, at first grade, kindergarten, kindergarten, you know, the kids could be doing the reading themselves, you know, reading out loud to, to the other students because they will have a lot of proficient readers by then. So this is one, one thing. Also, another thing, I think young children need a lot of playtime. They need a lot of R and R. So I would build, especially the boys, you know, but the girls too. I would, I would build a lot of R and R into the rest of recreation, into the school. So like do an hour on, on math, uh, no, sorry, reading, let's say, and then 30 or 40, 40 minutes of recreation. So let's, let's say we have a small community school, uh, what they call micro school now, some parents' backyard, some parents, your basement or something. So in the backyard, the parents chip in, you buy a jungle gym, you know, you get a you get a whole set, you know, a bunch of different balls, toys, dolls, stuff, and the kids could play. Uh, have a whole bunch of kids' books for the students that want to relax, you know, with a book, you know, and so on and so forth. And then, then we go back to work, you know, the, whether it's math, that's the next period, or history. And then after that, the second class again, 30 or 40 minutes of recreation, let the kids play. I think that's important uh, for the young kids. Furthermore, other than literature, I wouldn't have any homework. You know, you have to have homework in literature. You know, we're gonna we're gonna be studying. Let's say we're in middle school by this time. You know, by no, on November twelfth, we're gonna start studying Macbeth in class. We need to read Macbeth. Other than that, I wouldn't sign any homework. Uh, the kids would know they'll get to the end of the school day. You know, three, three fifteen, three thirty, whatever. The rest of the time is theirs. You know, they could do what they want or what they whatever their parents want. And I think it's it, you have a lot of recreation. You, you, they know there's no homework other than literature, you know, at the end of the day. And then they're motivated. And, and we need them motivated and rested and relaxed because I intend to drive them hard in the class. I, I, I don't think, I don't, you know, some people have this idea that you need hours and hours and hours and hours and hours in order to, to learn. I don't think that's true. I think, I think you, you learn a great deal in concentrated chunks with a lot of playtime. Uh, built it and, and motivating. I would drive them hard in the classroom, you know, with reading, with writing, with math, with history, with science, and one and you know, with, like I said, a lot of playtime and, and, and the rest of the day is theirs. No homework other than literature. So that that, that that's uh, that's one of the things that, or a couple of things I would do in education. A lot of that is really good. I liked uh, a lot of what you said. It certainly gave me a lot to reflect on. Um, William, is there anything you would like to say to sort of bring us to an, a close here? Uh, yeah, just uh, reflecting on what, what he was saying there. <clears throat> you know, I wished that in many of my classes that instead of spending an hour on something, we would have had just a really intense amount of time, you know, hours and hours on something. We could have a really intense amount of time and then use that other time for other things that like that would have been a perfect learning experience for me. And I think for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I, I think it's like. It makes sense to me what some companies are doing. You know, uh, have if you have a forty-hour work week, have four ten-hour days. Now, ten-hour work days are hard; they're arduous. I understand that, but I think most workers would appreciate would 
vote for because that means you have Fridays off, let's say, and you have a three-day weekend. And I think that's very motivating, you know? And I, I would certainly rather work four 10-hour days than five eight-hour days and have Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. I think that's, I think that's very, very motivating. So I can tell the kids, look, let's go, guys. We are going to crank. We're so the next 45 minutes, we're going to crank on mathematics. We're really going to churn it out. You're really going to concentrate. And then we'll go play. Uh, and I think the kids will be motivated. Yeah, motivation is certainly something that uh, I've noticed students struggle with very much. So I'm actually even going to reflect on this and try and integrate as much as I can within the, the rules of the the curriculum and education process I've been given. So I appreciate that. Yeah. All right, you're, I think, you're welcome. Go ahead. You're welcome. So. So I think so, that brings us to a, a good, nice, logical closing place here for this episode. Uh, it's been a, a great trip here into the midside. Uh, let's let's take a, a step back and let's reflect ourselves. Uh, what did we learn this trip? Let's start with you, Andy. What did you learn? Oh man, I learned that the uh, the horrors of child molestation are becoming worse and worse. They even have a politically correct or woke terminology for it. Not pedophiles anymore. What are they? What was the what's the term? They Minor use? attracted person map. My, 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 oh my God, minor attractive person. Uh, well, I learned something that's that's horrifying. But I don't want to end for, for, you know my part of this on a, on such a such a negative note. I learned again because this is the second time I was on your show that you guys are very good hosts with a good sense of humor. You you combine you know you combine the humor with serious uh, you know serious content, and I hope. Uh, yeah, and you, you've been on the air for a few years now, right? Your podcast. So yeah. you know, I hope I hope you you know attracted an audience who appreciates you know appreciates that and contributing to your to your Patreon account. So I learned, you know, I I reaffirm what I learned the first time I was on your show that that's a great combination of of humor, you know, fun on one hand and serious content on the other, which parallels what I was saying about what school could it should be a lot of fun and a lot of a lot of concentrated effort in studying academic subjects. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. William, what did you learn? Well, um, I learned that uh, we're expanding hack to mean uh, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, I'd like it to return to the original definition where it either means a hacker like myself or uh, someone who's really bad at their job, right? A hack. So, Justin, what did you learn this trip? Uh, I learned that we have to be careful with uh, maybe we need to apologize to construction workers in Iowa and taxi drivers in Mississippi. Um, and I, no, I also seriously, I was saying this at the end of when, you know, Andy was talking about, you know, what schooling could and should look like. Uh, I think a lot of what he said resonated with me and I was reflecting on my own teaching style and my own curriculum for the year and the way I designed it with what he was saying and thinking about the things I do well and the things I, I don't do well. So I feel like even in this short time span, just in this conversation, I'm already improving as an educator. So I appreciate that greatly. Well, you're very welcome, Justin. All right. Well, Andy, I want to thank you again for coming on. And now here's your opportunity Plug yourself any way you can. Where can they but people buy your book? Where can people get in contact with you? Well, th well thank you, guys. Um, yeah, why Johnny? By the way, 
a lot of people probably realize the book, the title's inspired by Rudolph Flesch, who in 1955 published the famous book, Why Johnny Can't Read, uh, and he argued for phonics very effectively. But my book, here we are, you know, set almost 70 years later, my book is Why Johnny Still Can't Read or Write or Understand Math and What We Can Do About It. And as we've been discussing, guys, the first half shows that, how and why the American school system is a shambles, and the second half shows how, how we can fix it. Uh, and parent power is the answer. Parents taking control over the kids' education is the fundamental answer. They can get that book, you know, why Johnny still can't read or write or understand math. They can get it on Amazon. They can get it at, at BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, you know, they uh, if they want to contact me, they could contact me through my website, AndrewBernstein.net. Uh, they can send me they can send me an email that way. And uh, you know, you go up on my website and they'll see all the, you know all the other books I've written: The Capitalist Manifesto. Uh, Heroes, legends, champions, why heroism matters. Yeah, I mean, I'm a hero worshiper, so you know, I wrote that book on heroes because uh, I wanted to rekindle a, a, a conversation or a debate about, about what heroes are. I gave, I gave a definition. You know, I arrived at a definition of heroes in that book. Heroes, legends, champions, why heroism matters. So, you know, they can find, um, you know, all, all the books I've written and a whole bunch of my essays we, we mentioned during the show the two climate change essays, Truth About Climate Change, and the follow-up one, Further Truth About Climate Change. So, yeah, on my website, andrewbernstein.net, they can find out a lot about me. And if they want to email me, they can email me through the website. So, uh, but, yeah, I'm really, education is in such bad shape. That's why I, I wrote I wrote this book, Why Johnny Still Can't Read or, or Write or Understand Math. So hope, hopefully we can get the book into the hands of parents and any other concerned people uh, and and, and, and education in this country can be improved enormously, can be, the mess can be fixed. And I think, I think my book points out a lot of the ways, a lot of things we could do to, to do this. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to plug the book, Justin. Thank you. Yeah. We love to have you on the show. We love when you talk about the stuff you write, because I think it's very important in general. And that's the, the kind of audience we want to have is people who would be interested in the things you're writing about. And we appreciate you coming on for that. And that's why we appreciate the people who listen to this podcast. Because as I always say, if it wasn't for you listening, this would just be me in my closet in the corner talking to myself. I mean, it still kind of is that, but you know, it's it's a little more fun when you're listening. And if you want to keep the show going, you want to help support us, you can do that through Patreon or Locals. It's the midside.com slash Patreon, the midside.com slash Locals. You can go to our website, the midside.com slash store, buy any of our merch. Uh, you can buy my novel, themidside.com slash The Cut. Check out my novel, The Cut. That's also available on Amazon. As always, that's how we keep the light on, keep the lights on. And William, what's the best way to improve the podcast and grow it? Tell a friend. Tell a friend. Tell a friend how much you enjoyed the episode with Andy Bernstein and how it made you want to read his book and think more seriously about education and why when we go out in public and interact with people, it can be tough to have even pleasant conversations without interpersonal hostility nowadays. Tell a friend. This you know, your journey. Go ahead. You might, one last thing. When I was a kid, they used to joke was, what are the three fastest ways to communicate something? Uh, telegraph, telephone, tell a woman. And, uh, you know, you can't, you're not supposed to say those things anymore because it sounds insulting to women, but I certainly don't mean it as an insult. You know, I have a lot, I, I like the ladies, and you know, in, in many ways. But, yeah, tell, tell, well, tell a woman or tell a man, right? Uh, tell somebody about, about the show. You're right. That's the way to do it. That's the way to grow it. This concludes your journey into the Midside.
I'm Justin M. Lesneski reminding you that if things get tough, take a step back and witness the farce. Have an educational day. You guys, you guys still there? Yep. Yeah, we're here. Print. That was was fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming on. Really enjoyed it. Uh, We had some live listeners that enjoyed it too, just so you know. Uh, And so I appreciate it.